You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Kallis. This is Lecture 7, given in Dornacht on the 6th of December, 1919. You have often heard about how reaching a true understanding of the human being involves paying close attention to how this human being is organized in three parts. Within him the three parts are organized in a way which can be divided, roughly speaking of course, into the head, the organs of the breast, and the limbs, with the latter including a large part of what lies within the torso. You will also have gathered from my lectures and from what is written in Title Riddles of the Soul how everything connected with thinking and having ideas is connected with the head how everything rhythmical, everything belonging to the sphere of feeling, is connected, roughly speaking, as I said, with the breast, and how the sphere of the will, which is actually the spiritual part of a human being, is connected with the limbs, with the organization of the limbs. These three systems of the human organism are relatively autonomous, and the life of ideas the life of feeling and the life of will, are also relatively autonomous, though, of course, they do work together. You know also that the best way to grasp the distinction between the three systems from the spiritual point of view is to say, in ordinary waking life, the human being is only fully awake in the system of his head, in everything involved with thinking and having ideas. In comparison, in everything connected with the life of feeling, with the rhythmic system, the human being is in a dream state, even when he is fully awake. We know what is going on in our life of feeling indirectly, through our ideas, but never directly through the actual feelings themselves. And our life of will is in even greater darkness, with all it involves being shrouded in sleep. We can thus explain more plainly than is usually the case that ordinary human consciousness is underpinned by other less conscious states. Subconscious perceptions underpin the life of feeling, and comparatively even more subconscious perceptions underpin the life of will. It is very important to realize, though, that thinking, feeling, and will are actually present in all three systems of the human being. Feeling and will are also present in the head system, the system of thinking, although they are much weaker there than is the life of thinking and ideas. Similarly, thoughts are also present in the sphere of feeling, where they come to consciousness only in a dreamlike way. They are weaker there than in the head sphere. 
What is, however, not normally taken into account in our age of abstract scientific thinking is the fact that these subconscious parts are as objective there in the same degree as they are subjective in our consciousness. What does this mean? It means that the processes taking place in our life of thinking and ideas, in our life of the head, are processes which to a great degree take place within us. However, what we experience in our rhythmic system, in our breast system, in our sphere of feeling, is not at all solely our individual possession. It takes place within us, but at the same time it represents objective world processes. This means that when you have a feeling, it is of course your feeling, but at the same time it is something which is taking place in the world, something of significance for the world. It is most interesting to observe upon what world processes our life of feeling is based. Let us assume that you experience something which generates very strong feelings in you, either of joy or sorrow. You know that human life runs its course in seven-year periods. The first period, see plate 12, takes us from birth to the change of teeth. The second continues until puberty, and the third to the beginning of our twenty-first year. Of course, all this is approximate, and so on. This is how the course of a human life is structured. When we consider this structure, we come to nodal points of human development, which in early life are expressed quite clearly in the change of teeth and the arrival of puberty, and which thereafter remain more or less hidden, although they are still quite clear later on for someone who knows how to observe them. What takes place in the body and the soul of the human being around his twenty-first year is just as obvious for someone who knows what to look for, as are the changes of teeth or puberty for external physiology. But on the whole, less notice is taken of this. This, then, is a more generalized structuring of human life. But when something occurs, some important event, for example between the change of teeth and puberty, something which is very arousing for the sphere of feeling, then something specific takes place which is normally not noticed, because nowadays things are only crudely observed. The event, however, does take place, and in a certain sense it makes an impression on the feelings. But when there is an impression on the feelings, then, regardless of what is taking place in your consciousness, in your soul life as such, something occurs in the objective world. What occurs in the objective world can be compared to a kind of swinging out which spreads into the world. But the remarkable thing is that it does not spread out endlessly. Once it has spread out sufficiently, when its elasticity is extended to the full, it then swings back, and it then reappears in the next seven-year period as an impulse which enters into your soul life from outside. Since these things vary from one individual to the next, 
I shall not maintain that such an event occurs in every case after approximately seven years. But if it does occur, it is not noticed by the individual. We are constantly in the process in our soul life of going through such things which enter into our life of feeling and which are the reaction of the world to what we have experienced in our feeling sphere during the previous seven-year period. In other words, when an event has somehow stirred our feeling life, it returns to our soul life during the next seven-year period. On the whole, people do not notice such things. But if one makes some effort, one can certainly notice them outwardly. Surely, we have all experienced a person who suddenly becomes anxious or ill-humored without knowing why. The person changes from one minute to the next. If one is able to cast the I-E-Y-E of one's soul upon such behavior, if one can sense what such a person is saying between the words, or even with the words, then one can look back to some former event by which feelings were aroused. During the whole intervening period, something has been going on in the world which would not have been going on if that arousal of feelings had not occurred. Apart from the fact that the individual has had the experience, it also continues to take place outside him, objectively, in the world. There are so very many opportunities for these things to take place objectively in the world, outside the individual, which have, nevertheless, been caused by that individual. Mixed in with these objective processes in the world are those things which take place among the elemental beings, including those I mentioned the other day where I linked them to the breathing system, the rhythmic system. Here you see them working together with the rhythmic system via the arousal of the feelings. These things, if we understand them rightly, oblige us to say that the human being is constantly generating something around himself which resembles quite a large aura. Elemental beings mingle with the waves caused by the person, and depending on the person, these elemental beings can exert an influence upon what comes back. You can picture it like this. A feeling is aroused. You send it out in waves. When it returns to you, it is not uninfluenced because the elemental beings have been busy with it in the meantime. So, when it works back, you receive the effect the elemental beings have had on it. Bracket, the right-hand semicircle is drawn. The drawing is now complete. Plate 12, close bracket. An interchange with elemental spirits arises through the spiritual atmosphere exuded by the human being. Everything arising from destiny in a person's life is linked to these things. Within our life, we have a kind of fulfillment of our destiny. What we experience today is significant for something later on. This is how our destiny is built. 
and elemental beings who feel attracted to us by our own nature participate in building our destiny. They feel attracted to us and they join in working on us. What you are seeing here is interaction between the human being and his environment and you are watching how spiritual beings play in our environment. And when you watch this interplay, much becomes apparent with regard to a person's destiny. Insight into these situations is, in our enlightened times, in quotes, enlightened nowadays always calls for quotation marks, very far away. Only the traditions from earlier times, when humanity was more connected with an awareness of elemental beings, are present now. These traditions are beautifully expressed in early poetry, where human destiny is more interwoven with intervention from elemental beings. One of the most beautiful poems still dealing with such intervention by elemental beings in our destiny is frequently shown in Eurythmy, where we see how those beings from the realm of the Earl König intervene in our lives. Quote, Earl Koenig's daughter. Count Olaf rode full late and long, bidding his friends to his bridal throng. There danced the wood nymphs o'er verdant land. Earl Koenig's daughter reached him her hand. Oh, welcome, Count Orloff. Why haste ye from here? Step thou in the ring and dance without fear. Oh, I dare not dance, and I cannot stay, for tomorrow is my wedding day. Now hear me, Count Olaf, dance thou with me, and two golden spurs I will give to thee, and a shirt of silk most fine and white, which my mother bleached by pale moonlight. Oh, I dare not dance, and I cannot stay, for tomorrow is my wedding day. Now hear me, Count Olaf, Dance thou with me, and a heap of gold I'll give to thee. A heap of gold I would take with glee, but ere I dance it may stay with thee. If thou wilt not, Count Olaf, dance with me, then sorrow and sickness will follow thee. Steiner again. Here you see the interweaving of the elemental world with human destiny in the way it influences the most conspicuous aspects of destiny, sickness and death. Quote, she struck him a blow across the heart. Close quote. Steiner again. Please do take note of such things. In ancient poetry, Herder took this from folk poetry. Things are not as they are in more modern poems. Of our modern poems, we really can say that about 99% are too much of a good thing. Poems emanating from ancient wisdom always correspond with facts, with what is real. So they would never say, quote, she struck him a blow across the head, close quote, or on the mouth or on the nose, but rather, quote, she struck him a blow across the heart. Never before had he felt such smart, close quote. It is necessary for there to be connection with an organ of rhythm, hence the heart. Quote, she raised him livid upon his steed. Ride home to thy lady, dear, with speed. 
And when he came before the door, his mother saw him with anguish sore. Hear me, son. Quick, tell thy tale. Oh, why is thy face so strangely pale? Ah, well, may my face be strangely pale. Earl Koenig's daughter has wrought my bale. Hear me, my son, so loved and dear. What shall I say thy bride to cheer? Tell her I went to the woods for an hour with horse and dog to prove their power. On the morn, when day scarce shone in the west, there came the bride and each wedding guest. She poured them mead, she poured them wine. Now where is Count Olaf, that bridegroom of mine? Count Olaf went to the woods for an hour with horse and dog to prove their power. The bride raised up the robe so red. There lay Count Olaf, and he was dead. What I want you to notice is the practical way in which the poem reports what goes on around a human being in such an hour of destiny. This is what always goes on around a human being, especially when events stimulating the feeling sphere are repeated periodically. They always return in a way which involves influencing our destiny, not in the same way, but after those elemental beings have influenced it. Just as we live in the external physical air or under the influence of the mineral, plant and animal kingdoms, so do we also live with our initially subconscious parts, with our rhythmical system, in the spiritual sphere of the elemental beings. And that is where as much of our destiny is constructed as is capable of being constructed in our life between birth and death. It is solely because we are fully aware in our head that we protrude from this interplay with the elemental beings. It is only in the wide-awake life of our head that we are not embedded in the kingdom of the elemental beings. That is where we protrude above the surface of the elemental ocean in which, as human beings, we constantly float. What you see here is the repetition of the events, of the destiny events, already within ordinary life, through what takes place in our rhythmic system and in our limb system. This, in its turn, also enters into interplay with the surroundings, but it is more complicated much, much more complicated. And this too swings back on itself, but with a wider swing. These only return in the next life on earth, or in one of the next lives. There is thus no need for our destiny, our karma, to be so very mysterious for us, if only we observe that it is simply an enlargement of what we can study within a human life as regards the return of such events. They do not return unchanged. Indeed, they are very much changed when they return. Let me draw your attention to something. In my pedagogical lectures, wherever they have taken place, I have always pointed out that an important nodal point occurs round about the ninth year. A very great deal of attention should be paid in school to this particular nodal point in human life. Up to that point, for example, nature studies should only be conducted by describing natural processes, in fables, in legends, and so on, in connection with the moral life of human beings. 
Only after that should one make a beginning with simple elementary scientific descriptions of nature, because it is now that the children will be ready for this. A proper curriculum arises entirely out of a real observation of the human being, right down to every detail. I have already pointed this out in my essay on the pedagogical basis of the Waldorf School. There, too, I indicated the period of roughly the ninth year. That is when awareness of the ego reaches a new stage. The human being is now more capable of observing nature in a more objective way. Prior to that, he merges whatever he sees in external nature with his own being. Consciousness of the ego has already been developing throughout the first seven-year period, even at the age of two or two and a half. But now, in the second seven-year period, it returns again at around the age of nine. This is one of the most noticeable returns, this return of ego consciousness at around the ninth year. Ego consciousness now returns in a more spiritual form, whereas it was more in the soul during the second or third year. This is only one of the events which return in a more noticeable manner, but it can also be seen in connection with other less significant events in life. Understanding these intimate facts about the life of the human being will in future become increasingly urgent. Insight about such things will gradually have to become part of general knowledge. General understanding about such things does change from time to time. Nowadays we are unhappy if our children reach the age of ten without being able to cope with certain aspects of arithmetic. That was not the case in Roman times. The Romans were unhappy if a boy of ten still did not know the law of the Twelve Tables whereas we do not mind if our children are not yet familiar with the legal system. Indeed, our soul constitution would be in a sorry state if this were still the case. So what is deemed to be necessary as general knowledge changes with the times, and we are now at a point in time when such intimate facts about the soul life of the human being must become a part of general knowledge. Human beings must get to know themselves more thoroughly than has been considered necessary until now. If this does not happen, the consequences will be extremely unfavorable for the whole shape of human life. The fact that we are unaware of the origin of something which disturbs us does not prevent it from happening in our life of soul. Things do return, and they do influence our life of soul. We cannot explain them, and we are indeed not even consciously aware of them. As a result, people begin to have all kinds of inner worries. They suffer greatly from this, but have to accept them, although, of course, they do not realize that they are the consequence of former earth lives. Matters of feeling always return in some form or other. For example, if you teach a child to pray, if the child develops a prayerful mood in his life of feeling, this too will swing back at a later stage. It will swing back after a very long time or even in between whiles as well. 
after a very long time, prayerfulness will return as a soul mood of blessing. That is why I often say that no older person will be able to bless if he has not learned to pray during childhood. Prayer is transformed into blessing. This is the nature of such returns which swing back during life. Such things must gradually come to be understood. The fact that they are not yet understood is the reason why the great significance of the mystery of Golgotha cannot yet be fully comprehended by humanity. What does it mean to people bound up in present-day culture when one tells them that after passing through the mystery of Golgotha the Christ became united with the life of earthly humanity? People do not want to develop ideas about the way in which they themselves are in interrelationship with what surrounds the Christ. For the understanding of our head, the influence of the Christ impulse is not very obvious. But when we look down into our unconscious, into the feeling sphere and the will sphere, that is when we enter the sphere of the elemental beings, and this is the sphere which for us is interwoven with the Christ impulse. Physiologically speaking, we submerge ourselves in our rhythmic system and then onward, down, into the region with which the Christ has united himself for our earthly existence. That is where one can say that the Christ is to be found objectively, rather than through tradition or some kind of subjective mysticism. We are now living in an epoch in which the events emanating from there, as I explained the other day, have a strongly objective significance with regard to human life. This is because they gradually begin to influence unconsciously the decisions people make when they are reluctant to accept such things. When we are willing to accept them, we experience the influence consciously, which means that we can reckon with them. We can, to some degree, call upon those spiritual worlds, which are a part of our life, to collaborate with us. It is also externally obvious that we are in this respect at a turning point of human evolution. I need only mention a certain fact about which I have often spoken in connection with one point of view or another. Looking at historical matters in the way they are often presented nowadays, we have to say that historical accounts have not yet progressed to include the mystery of Golgotha. You need only examine what ordinary world history presents you with You read descriptions of the ancient Assyrians, the Babylonian kingdom, ancient Persia, the Egyptian kingdom, Greece, Rome. At this point, mention is perhaps also made of the mystery of Golgotha having taken place. But then the historical sequence continues with the migration of the barbarian peoples and so on, right up, on the one hand, to Louis XIV or the French Revolution, or Poincaré, and, on the other, to the downfall of the Hohenzollerns, and so forth. But in the ordinary fable convenu, known as history, you will find absolutely nothing about the continuing influence of the Christ impulse. As far as historical accounts are concerned, 
it looks as though the Christ impulse has been wiped out. How strange it is that, for example, an historian such as Ganka, who was a devout Christian and who subjectively held the Christ impulse in high esteem, should make no mention at all of the Christ impulse in his historical writings. He is unable to make anything of it. The Christ impulse has no standing in historical accounts. One has to say that as far as people's spiritual understanding is concerned, Christianity does not yet exist in human history. Our anthroposophical spiritual science is the first to recognize it in a positive way in that it reveals the concrete historical development of the event of Golgotha in its descriptions of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. As you know, the event of Golgotha is included in the way we present history. In fact, we go even further. Not only do we present the evolution of humanity by including the event of Golgotha in it, we also depict world evolution, cosmic evolution, in such a way that the mystery of Golgotha is central to it. When you contemplate my book titled An Outline of Occult Science, Readers Aside, also known as An Outline of Esoteric Science, and a Readers Aside, you will see that it tells not only of past eclipses of the sun or past eclipses of the moon or some explosions or eruptions in the cosmos, but also of the Christ event as a cosmic event. The strange thing is that when one initially says that historians, so-called historians, do not find it possible to include the Christ event in the course of history, official representatives of the faith go berserk. When they hear that something like anthroposophical spiritual science talks of the Christ event, the official representatives of the faiths become enraged. This shows how little the faiths are inclined properly to fulfill the great demand of our time, which is to connect the Christ event with world events in general. One cannot help concluding that people, even theologians, who frequently speak of the Christ, do so in a way which is no different from the way they speak of any divine being. It is no different, for example, from the way the Hebrews of old, or even Jewish people today, still speak of their Yahweh or Jehovah. As I said the other day, you can take Harnack's book titled What is Christianity and cross out the name of Christ wherever he uses it and include the general name of God in its place. You will find that this does not alter the meaning at all since the author has no conception of what is specific about Christianity. In fact, page by page, Harnack's book is a description of the opposite of what Christianity is. It deals not with Christianity but with the general teachings about Yahweh. It is very important to point these things out since they are closely connected with the necessary requirements of our time. That which must stream into human cultural development is a human awareness of the presence not only of a general, abstract, spiritual world, but of a concrete spiritual world in which we live with our feeling and our will and from which only our thinking, our head, is separated. It is certainly the case that a new kind of worldview is needed which involves a proper penetration of our feeling and thinking and doing 
with the Christ impulse. The fact that our astronomy, our doctrines of evolution have unfolded in entirely abstract formula in recent times is solely due to the Christ impulse having not yet grasped hold inwardly of human beings. It has instead remained a tradition and has taken hold of human beings very subjectively and yet not inwardly in a way which would cause these inner experiences to become at the same time objective world experiences in which we would live in an interplay with what is taking place spiritually in all that surrounds us. It is, however, possible to notice here and there the dawning of a strong awareness that new impulses are needed by humanity. But human beings find it so very hard to grasp a concrete life of the Spirit. When they speak of the Spirit, they still yearn more or less strongly to live in the abstract. Even our attitude to our thoughts needs to change in some way. I have often pointed out from one angle or another that what I mean by this is that the lectures on anthroposophical spiritual science given at the present time do not have the purpose of propagating a specific program. They are not given with a specific aim in mind of generating enthusiasm for some kind of ideal. The reason for giving them is that they are needed by present-day humanity. So one must take as one starting point certain soul conditions of earlier times which existed during epochs when we were as yet more closely connected with our true spiritual environment. This was different in former times. But nowadays we ought to have a very strong feeling for it. I have often said that nothing further awaits humanity from the outside. It is from the inside, from our links with the spiritual world, that impulses for the progress of humanity must come. And we must develop a good eye, E.Y.E., for the fact that what we are encountering, without any fault on our part, are increasingly experiences of decline. We are to some extent already on the downward path of earthly evolution, and we must, as human beings, lift ourselves up in order to rise above the evolution of the earth through our involvement with the spiritual world. For this to come about, however, what we are striving for in the form of knowledge must be felt to be a force which will enable the whole of humanity to move on to the next phase of evolution, if the earth were to die beneath our feet, just as we are able to pass over other more minor stages of evolution when our body dies and we pass through the portal of death. As individual human beings we pass through the portal of death into the spiritual world as our body dies away beneath us. That is what it will one day be like for humanity as a whole. The whole of humanity will one day bear a path across to the Jupiter existence, to what I call the Jupiter existence, and the earth will remain as a corpse. It is already in the process of dying. Individual human beings develop wrinkles and gray hair, and today for geologists who are able to make proper observations, 
as I mentioned the other day. The earth is showing clear signs of aging. It is dying away from under us. So what we are searching for spiritually is indeed a way of working to counter the earth's aging process. We really must fill ourselves entirely with an awareness of this. From another point of view, earlier ages described their mystery knowledge as something akin to the power of healing and also of physical healing. This awareness, too, must once again begin to permeate humanity. Our striving for knowledge must generate the awareness that with it one is making an effort toward the further development of mankind as a whole. We would naturally never reach this awareness if we were not to face up to what is concrete all around us in the manner I have described. For then we would regard the matter of what we feel and want and do as merely our own personal affair. We would not realize that this was going on outside of ourselves as well. Another thing which will also be necessary, and here I must make a remark that may not be so readily understood in general, it will be necessary also to make an approach to the more exact aspects of human knowledge. These are, however, not yet at their best. One can still find the most impossible notions being put forward by the exact sciences. Let me mention just one example which may be generally comprehensible. People imagine superficially that the sun is here somewhere. From it, light emanates in all directions, as it would from any other source of light. All those who have a mathematical conception of this emanating light say, the light spreads out to infinity, and then it somehow disappears. As it spreads out to infinity, it then dies of its own weakness. But this is not true. Everything which spreads out reaches a limit, and then it swings back from that limit, reaching its original source in a different form. See Plate 12. The light of the sun does not spread out to infinity. It swings back upon itself, not as light, but now as something different. This is also how it is with every kind of light, and this is basically how it is with all other effects. Every effect is subject to the law of elasticity, with a limit to that elasticity. Yet the idea previously described is everywhere to be found in our so-called exact sciences, and far too little account is taken of the reality. If you were a physicist, I would point out to you how people in physics today reckon with distance traveled and with time taken. And then they make their calculation with the velocity, which is usually shown as c or v, a function of distance and time, and they depict it as a quotient. c equals s over t. But this is completely incorrect. The velocity is not the result. The velocity is the primary quality which anything, whether physical or spiritual, has within it and we dissect the velocity into distance, or space, and time. We abstract these two things. Space and time as such are not real. 
velocities in the world are something real, various velocities. This remark is directed solely to physicists. They will understand that even in all the things on which knowledge of time is theoretically based, there are postulates which are flawed. These postulates are present everywhere only because we are not able to conceive of something spiritual as being something concrete. This is what we are called upon to do in the Michael age, that humanity may reach a situation in which it is possible to grasp what is spiritual in its concreteness, so that just as one speaks of air and water being in the environment, so can one also know that the various elemental and higher beings are in the environment. This is what matters, and this is something which must become human culture, just as it was human culture in olden times. But people are reluctant to admit this. They do not at all want to recognize the reversals in human evolution, such as occurred, for example, in the middle of the 15th century. Yet there are details which prove that it did indeed occur. Someone, a Swede or Norwegian, recently wrote a book in which he quoted a good deal from the alchemists. In particular, he quoted a passage by an alchemist mentioning various substances, mercury, antimony, and so on. And then that author of today, who, as his book shows, is a very excellent modern chemist, says that he cannot imagine what the chemical recipe quoted by the alchemist is all about. Well, he cannot imagine what it is about for the simple reason that he, the modern-day chemist, talks about mercury, about quicksilver, and that he imagines the mineral quicksilver. And when a modern chemist talks about antimony, well, for him, this is antimony, the metal, and so on. In the book he quotes, however, something quite different is meant. Not the external metal, but certain processes which occur in the human organism. It is knowledge about the interior of the human body. Something based on the consciousness of the original author is quoted by that modern-day gentleman who assumes that the reference is to a laboratory experiment using retorts and so on. So he cannot help regarding what he is reading as nonsense. It is not nonsense, however. As soon as one realizes that the references to antimony, mercury, and so on, even though there is also some connection to the actual metals, apply to processes within the human body. So someone reading that literature prior to the 15th century will find in it something entirely different from what comes to be understood later on. Looking at such things could be yet another way of studying the transformations which take place in the constitution of the soul. Today we are living in an age when we should begin to pay close attention to things which over centuries humanity has persisted in ignoring. The end of Lecture 7